0: Welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today we're talking about the hidden reasons that golf is so appealing. My guest is Bob Cullen, who tackled this very question in a book called Why Golf? This is one of my favorite golf books. It touches on evolutionary psychology, philosophy, design, and many other subjects, and its basic purpose is to explain why certain people not only play golf, but become absolutely obsessed with it. Bob's book, Why Golf, came out in 2000, so there was no particular occasion for us to talk about it other than the fact that we wanted to. So hope you enjoy the conversation. But before we get there, I want to tell you about the Friday's new membership. It's called Club TFE, and it offers exclusive content like weekly course reviews and members-only videos and virtual hangouts with Friday's staff. You also get early access to register for Friday events and an annual gift. We're launching it on January 2nd, But you can sign up right now at TheFriedEgg.com slash membership. All right, on to the episode. All right, so Bob, when we were talking about you coming on the podcast a while back, you responded, I'd love to come on, I'd love to talk about my book, Why Golf, but I do have one request, and that is that we discuss the concept of the groundy. And so I've been curious for months now. I have resisted the temptation of asking you straight up, but what is a groundy?
1: Well, the truth is that when you get to be my age in golf, uh, you can't uh, look forward to sort of Jack Nichols style uh, pars and birdies the way uh, once in a while you might've been able to in the past. So, in my case uh, getting the ball in the air sometimes is a little problematic. So uh, a groundy is a birdie that you make, probably on a par three, without the ball ever leaving the ground. Uh, and I've had one of those. You you scull <laughs> the ball off the tee, but it rolls and rolls and rolls, hits the green, and then you uh, make the putt. It's second in my uh, esteem only to the aqua sandy, which I managed in uh, Florida uh, last winter, uh, which is when you scull the ball off the tee, through a water hazard and it skips off the hazard and then lands in a bunker and you put the bunker shot on the green and make the putt. And that is called the aqua sandy. Um, I can't ever, I can't expect anymore to have a good round in the seventies, but I can occasionally pick up a groundy or an aqua sandy or something like that. And, uh, and take some pleasure from those.
0: I have a friend who once told me when we were playing, I'm not out here for a score because if I were, I would just be frustrated. I'm out here to make birdies and interesting pars. And whatever happens in between is just sort of whatever. I I am not going to bring myself to care about that. But I think a a groundy, I mean, it's a birdie technically, right? But if you were to make a par in a groundy manner, that would certainly qualify as an interesting par as well.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, many people might recognize your name, not only from the book, Why Golf, but also from the the covers of some bestsellers by Dr. Bob Rotella, the famous sports psychologist. You helped him write books like uh, Golf is Not a Game of Perfect, How Champions Think, etc. cetera. I think people listening to this podcast will probably be familiar with with this kind of series of books that uh dr rotella and you have done in the past uh 25 30 years or so so maybe we could start with you telling a story that you actually tell in your book why golf about how you got linked up with dr rotella how did that happen
1: well it was one of the fortunate breaks of my life um There was a guy named Bob Carney. There is a guy named Bob Carney at Golf Digest. And he was set up to work with Bob Rotella on the book that became Golf is Not a Game of Perfect. But uh, because he got a promotion at Golf Digest, he backed away from the project. And Rotella was left looking for a collaborator. And we share a literary agent, uh, Rafe Segalen. And so Rotella said to Rafe, I'm, I'm looking to write a book about psychology uh, for the average golfer, and I need a collaborator. And Rafe said, well, I have a client who's a very average golfer. And uh, so I, I happen to live in the Washington area, and Bob Rotella lives in Charlottesville, Virginia. And so I drove down there, and, and we chatted and uh, decided it was worth trying to work together. And that collaboration produced eight or nine books uh, and put my kids through college. Uh, it was, uh, it was one of the nicest things that's ever happened to me.
0: What are some of the most important things that you learned from Dr. Rotella about the mental approach to golf?
1: I guess they could be encapsulated in one, um, phrase, train it and trust it. Um, I think before I started to work, uh, as a ghostwriter for Bob, I, was one of those players who was constantly thinking about the last uh, tip that I read about in a golf magazine and trying to use it on the golf course and his um understanding of the game includes the fact that your body really works better when you allow your self-conscious your subconscious I'm sorry uh your subconscious brain to control your movements and it does so much better than your conscious brain can do. Uh, for example, if you think about, if you're probably too young for this, but if you ever learned to drive a stick shift, when you first started to learn, you're using your conscious brain, trying to think about when to put in the clutch, when to move the lever, et cetera, et cetera. And the car lurches and jerks and, and can barely move. And after a while, though, you, you start to learn it in your subconscious brain, and you don't even think about shifting the car anymore, and you drive very smoothly from one point to the next. Well, the golf swing is like shifting your car. Um, you ingrain the correct movements by training it, and then your best chance to play well is by not thinking about it and letting your subconscious brain control your swing. And uh, the problem that a lot of golfers have and that that Rotella helps them with is that they get into a situation in a tournament. If you're a pro golfer or with a three dollar Nassau on the line, if you're an amateur and you really want to win, you really want to play well. And so you turn on your conscious brain and you screw it up. Uh, the best. Advice that Rotella ever gave anybody or me in particular was, you know, just think about where you want the ball to go and swing and don't think about how to swing. And uh, if you've done your practicing a little, even if you haven't practiced, you're still going to produce a better swing relative to your skill level if you just let it go. And uh, that's one of the skills that uh, Rotella teaches. And it helped my game tremendously. Uh, Although I have to say, I'm like the preacher's kid. Uh, Rotel also says, uh, don't get upset about a bad shot. Uh, just let it go and accept it. And I'm not the kind of person that can do that very easily. Um, my friends, uh, tell me that they, they call something the, the Cullen cry of anguish and they, <laughs> uh, they count how many CCAs they hear during the course of a Saturday round and, uh, and then tease me about it at lunch, but, uh, It's some parts of the of the Rotella teachings come easier to me than others.
0: Well, let me bring up part of Rotella's philosophy, which I don't question the validity of that has frustrated me in the past. And that is this idea of turning on and off the conscious mind, as you put it. I find that I don't have much control over what my mind does, that As much as I would like to be in the moment, kind of in that flow state where you're not thinking about the specifics of what you're doing, you're just looking at the target and making it happen, you're trusting your training, you're not being self-conscious about it. I'd love to get to that state. I'm not sure how to get there because I don't know that I'm really in control of what my brain does. And so I wonder, I mean, this would obviously be a good question for Dr. Rotella himself, but I wonder if you, as somebody who kind of learned as this stuff, as well as wrote about it, had ever, you know, explored that that notion that the brain is really hard to control, and some people are better at it than others, but I find myself in particular very poor at
1: that. Well, I think one thing he would say is that you have to practice it. Yeah. Um, and so with his players, he doesn't want them working with a swing teacher the day of the tournament or just before a tournament. He wants their practice sessions just before a competition to be in the trusting mode. And therefore he tells them, don't think about your swing. Just think about the target on your, as, and think about that more and more as, or try to think that way more and more as the competition approaches. Um, if you need to make a swing change, or if you need to uh, work on your mechanics, then the time to do that is well before competition. Uh, work on the mechanics in a, in a kind of uh, controlled way. And then as your your competition date approaches or your round approaches, more and more you have to practice in the trusting mode. And uh, that's that's one thing that kind of helps. But obviously it presupposes that you're doing a lot of practicing, uh, which is not something everybody gets a chance to do.
0: My wife tells me I need to meditate. And <laughs> I think she's probably right, <laughs> that that is a kind of practice of exerting control over your own mind of saying, you know, this is the, the mind is part of my body. It's not something that kind of exists apart and does what it wants. I am in control of it. But that's so hard to do. That's an incredibly difficult discipline.
1: It's not easy, um, and that's one reason why a lot of people have read the books and they're still not winning the U.S. Open. Uh, <laughs> although some of Rotella's – Rotella, there's something else I have to tell you about Rotella that is not in any of the books, um, and that is his personality. Players respond to him, and, uh, and he, he has a tremendous knack – for figuring out what's going to work, what kind of words, what kind of approach is going to work with anybody that he trains or, or works with. And that's that's one of his gifts. And it's not something that's easy to reproduce in a book. Uh, because when you read the book, it's his words, but it's not the same as being next to him on the practice range. Absolutely. And I've
0: heard people say the same thing about the swing coach, Butch Harmon. It's not so much about the technique, though he has mastery of that. It's about the way he communicates and the confidence that he instills and the attitude that he encourages. And, you know, that can't really be written down. It's embodied in the personality of the coach. And that is kind of the value of the teaching there. Um, but certainly, I mean, the books have, have helped many golfers kind of conceptualize how they might be able to improve their mental games. I mean, at least it gives a path.
1: Well, and some of it is, some of it is just common sense. There's a chapter in golf is not a game of perfect that says, if you're not spending 70% of your practice time on your short game, you're not practicing to score better. And when I started working with doc, uh, I didn't ever practice my short game. And if I practiced at all, I would take a driver out and wail the ball and try to hit it further. And under his guidance, I started to practice my short game. And sure enough, I dropped eight strokes off my handicap during the year we worked in the book. And, uh, you know, that didn't, that trend didn't continue, but I got better, uh, every year we worked together, um, because I, he was, constantly reminding me to practice my chipping and putting
0: all right well let's talk a little bit about your own book why golf which came out in in the year 2000 and i love this book you know it's it's one that i've i've been a fan of for years and, and read multiple times and often think about you know in the course of of doing my job um and the, the central question of it is embodied in the title why is it that golf is so appealing? Why golf specifically? Why is it that this is the game that we become, we golfers become obsessed with? Some of the explanations that you give toward the beginning of the book have a lot to do with what I think of as evolutionary psychology, right? Where part of the explanation for why we like what we like and why we do what we do is deep in our genetic coding, right? these things that are still there inside us because humans existed for a long long time before we all moved into cities and got you know bureaucratic jobs and did all the modern things that we do now right. humans existed for many many more centuries before that and and developed kind of modes of being and desires that had a lot to do with hunter gatherer society and and what life was like in that kind of Environment and that kind of social structure. Um, And evolutionary psychology gets at some of those tendencies in humans that were developed way, way back and tries to explain some of our behavior in the present day by referring back to those. Early instances of of genetic coding and motivation in humans. I'm not sure if I've explained that very well. That's that's kind of what evolutionary psychology does. But you uh, it you drew on this a lot in explaining why golf uh, was so appealing. And and maybe you could uh, take me through that a little bit. What are some of the things that you found?
1: Well, one of the first things in why golf is so appealing is the place where you play. Um, I Know that since I've been a small child, I've always thought golf courses were great places to be. Just the the look of the golf course appeals to me, even if it's a scruffy municipal golf course like Rock Creek Park in Washington. Um, it still seems to strike a chord within me, and I think within most golfers. Uh, and I had some conversations with a with a friend named Bob Wright, who's a a writer of of Uh, some very serious and important books who loves to play golf. And he uh, introduced me to a book called The Biophilia Hypothesis, I believe, which suggests that there are deep within our hunter-gatherer reptilian brains uh, associations with places of prospect versus places of refuge. Places of prospect are like the fairways and the greens on a golf course, and places of refuge are like the woods and that water hazards. And uh, the desire to be in a place of prospect is something that's existed within human beings for thousands and thousands of years. Um, and there are some fundamental uh, instinctive pleasures or desires. Um, there's a chapter in Why Golf called The Blind Baby Smile, or Why the Blind Baby Smiled. And one of the psychologists that uh, I cited was interested in why it was that a blind baby who could never see a smile could learn to smile. And it turns out that if the baby can be set up in a situation whereby kicking at things or striking things, it can move something in the environment it smiles the baby smiles even if it's never seen a smile and that's an indication that the basic act of playing golf the, the movement of the ball by striking it with a club strikes some chord within us that uh, probably had to do with the genetic advantage of being able to manipulate your environment and uh so and and that's probably also the case with so many other sports. I mean, uh, golf is not the only sport that you move a ball around in a playing area. Uh, almost all sports have that inv- involved with them. And so, but that's a, one of the reasons why, whether it be hitting a drive down the middle of the fairway or sinking a three-point shot or, you know, hitting a, uh, hitting a baseball really solidly and, and seeing it go into the outfield, those are instinctively satisfying feelings for a lot of people. And uh, and it's it's wired into our wired into us, whether it's in the genes or in some other fashion. I don't know. I'm not a scientist, so it's hard for me to, to make a definitive statement. But it's clear that there are some elements of golf, both in terms of the setting and in terms of the movement of the ball that
2: are ringing a bell deep within our being now for a quick word from our sponsor meridian uh meridian's back they've been uh they sponsored earlier in the year and uh this is all about hygiene, men's hygiene, you know, making sure you're a groomed man. And below the belt trimming tends to be a taboo topic. But Meridian is breaking the stigma and helping everyone take better care of their bodies. They have a new it's trimmer, the Trimmer Plus. It's got a lot of new bells and whistles features that are, uh, are going to make trimming easier. You know, some of the things that this really great high quality trimmer feature, uh, 6,000 RPM motor, that's very fast. Flexible ceramic blade, anti-nick shaving guard. That seems really important. Uh, it is waterproof also, which, uh, which is nice and cordless and 90 minutes to charge so if you're if you're traveling whatever uh you can bring it with you and it you don't have to worry about it, it it dying on you while you're out on the road without the charger uh you know it can be used all over the body uh it's not just you know for below the belt so and you save more when you bundle so the more stuff you get on there they have some like nice stuff they have replacement blades but they have a nice travel case that i actually use um when i travel so i would check it out uh meridian grooming.com is where you go. And if you use the promo code fried egg, you'll get 10% off. Thank you for Meridian coming back and uh, supporting the show. Again, you could go to meridiangrooming.com and check out their wide array of grooming products, including their, their world-class trimmers.
0: Well, I, I want to go back to golf courses as places for a second before moving on to, you know, the appeal of, playing the game itself, hitting the ball, etc. There are lots of interesting things in, in both of those pursuits. And there are evolutionary explanations, I suppose, for both kinds of appeal in golf, but prospect and refuge. So prospect environments are, are places where you can see a lot, basically, right. Where you can, can see right. over an expanse of land, you know, think of the Savannah that that's kind of a, a prospect environment. Whereas refuge environments are, are more like a jungle or a forest where you can be sort of hidden away. And, you know, both of those environments can be appealing to humans for different reasons, right? So, what are the reasons that a refuge environment might be appealing? And what are the reasons that a prospect environment might
1: be appealing? The sort of hunter gatherer paradigm. Uh, the hunters would be the ones that would go out into the places of prospect so they could uh, hunt game or uh, something like that. Uh, the and and you wouldn't want to
0: hunt game in a forest, right? That, right? That's not the ideal place to be hunting because, you know, you, you can't, can't see you very far. Really, you don't really, really have hunting. an advantage there.
1: Right. Whereas the gatherers would tend to be people who wanted to be protected from or wanted to protect themselves from wild animals. And they would spend their time in, in a forest or a, uh, some kind of an environment where they had some natural shelter or natural protection against predators and where they could uh, find f- food sources um, that uh, were available on the forest floor or hanging from the branches or something like that. So you're, the obvious oversimplistic explanation is that Golfers are descended from hunters and gatherers uh, and and non-golfers are descended from gatherers. And that the reason the golf course is so appealing to some people, but not all, is that some people have more of that hunter gene and some people have more of that gatherer gene.
0: Now, I would say that a lot of golf courses are there's many varieties of golf courses. Right. Some golf courses have a lot more prospect environments than others, but the golf courses that are at least most appealing to me are ones where there are both kind of prospect and, and refuge environments, where there's an alternation between places where you can see an expanse and places where you're more enclosed, and the golf course kind of moves in and out between those and so it's a kind of combination, or or the, the best of both worlds you could even say, where you get these moments where you feel kind of tucked away and protected or hidden, and you get moments where you're more behaving in a hunter manner and looking over a broad environment and seeing what's next. Those are the kind of more expansive moments of the golf round and then the kind of release moments and then when you're in the in those you know kind of more sheltered environments you get a a different feeling. And so I think a lot of golf courses sort of deliver both.
1: I think you may be right. I think that uh, for example when I look at Oakmont today or Congressional where the USDA has persuaded those clubs to remove thousands and thousands of trees they're not as appealing to me as they were when I first saw them and they were had, they had a lot more trees and tree line fairways. Um, so, yeah, the, the association uh, with the places of refuge uh, is probably one of the things that makes the most appealing golf courses as appealing as they are. Um, although you obviously you don't want to spend a lot of time in your place of refuge if you're playing around golf. Uh. That's true. Yeah,
0: you don't want to be in the swamp,
1: right? <laughs> right, or in the in the trees or wherever where, yes. where uh, yeah. some of us spend way too much time. Yeah. Uh, instead of out on that nice sun-drenched fairway.
0: Well, you know, regarding tree removal, I would say that a lot of golf courses maybe went too far in the direction of making the entire golf course refuge, right? <laughs> where you're surrounded by trees the entire time. And I think that the most successful tree removal projects have often been ones where enough trees were removed so that places of prospect were opened up. And there were moments when you can kind of see across the golf course and and get that feeling, you know, that good feeling of being in command of, of your environment. Um, but then there are also moments where there are some trees. There are enough trees left so that you can get the other feeling or the other side of it. Um, and so on, on many golf courses, I, I like that tree removal has created the opportunity for both of those to be experienced. Now you may say, okay, Oakmont, pretty much all of the trees are, are gone on most parts of the golf course. And and there's a particular argument for that, but, uh, but I guess I, I'm, I'm glad that certain golf courses have moved back to a place where there are more kind of, kind of prospects, uh, in, on, on the scene, I, I suppose. Um, now n- another element of this that was interesting in your book is the idea of clipped grasslands, right? Where, you know, part of the reason that golf courses are appealing is that the grass is, is kind of short. And so, you know, what, what about that? What's the, uh, what's, what's the the feeling that we get from that?
1: I think that, that to a hunter in, in prehistoric times, the, Uh, The sight of clipped grass suggested there was prey ahead, and uh, that was very pleasant to see and and resonated nicely with them so that it meant that uh, the kind of animals that graze and and like sheep or who were in the first golf courses or in in other places, uh, other kinds of grazing animals were near at hand, and therefore the hunting was going to be good. Uh, That's my feeling about it but it's obviously not something you could ever probably prove right
0: well, that's the thing about uh, some of these ideas of evolutionary psychology is that right. it is kind of hard to prove. <laughs> yeah. There's really no way to prove aside from, you know, making a convincing argument about it. But, yeah, I find this idea that, that golf courses kind of replicate a landscape that humans are coded to react well to, you know, wherever you want to take that argument, whatever specifics of golf courses you want to point out, that does seem right to me. That golf courses just give you this feeling of ah, this is a good place to be. And it, do you still have that feeling today when you walk on a golf course?
1: Yes, uh, although I have to say that compared to twenty odd years ago, if I were writing the book today, I would give more emphasis to the fact that one of the one of the appealing things about golf is that it's a game where you can measure your improvement. You know, when I when I wrote this book, I was working my handicap down from twenty one, where it was when I started working with Bob Rotella, to five, which is as low as I ever got. And now that my handicap is going in the opposite direction, uh, because of a variety of things, mostly age, I really find that I miss the notion of improvement um, and the. The striving to, to get that handicap a stroke lower, uh, and regularly, uh, work on your game. Um, as David Oakley observed, you can't, when you get to the point in life where you have all the time you need to work on your game, your body won't let you. And, uh, there are, and your body won't let you hit the ball that far anymore. I remember once about, uh, well, I don't know, 20 years ago being at a clinic. With Jack Nicholson, he was demonstrating how he hits the ball. He says, "Well, that's the way I do it." But ball doesn't go anywhere anymore. Of course, he was only hitting it two sixty. I thought, <laughs> wow, well, I'd like to be able to hit, make the ball not go anywhere the way Jack does. But uh, you know, age robs us all of the ability to uh, hit the ball as far as we once could, hit it as high as we once could, and so forth. And uh, it's it's tough to. To want to practice enough on the things that you can still do as you get older, like your chipping and your pitching and your putting, to uh, to compensate for the loss of distance and and uh, club head speed. So anyway, uh, so if you don't, and I don't, I'm afraid, uh, want to spend a lot of time practicing your short game to compensate for your reduced club head speed and so on, you find your handicap going in the wrong direction, and that takes a lot of pleasure away from the game, I have to say. Uh, in retrospect, I would have said, you know, that the notion of improving, uh, of reaching a goal and then climbing to another goal is one of the most appealing aspects of golf. It's not, I don't think, a coincidence that golf, probably of all sports that I can imagine, has the best handicap system. And the most scientific way of determining, you know, exactly where your game is in terms of your scoring and that handicap number. You know, I just got my handicap the other day from uh, the Maryland State Golf Association. So every every two weeks I get an update and it's it can be both a great thing or a, a saddening thing if you if you see it going down. Uh, that really is encouraging. And if you see it going up, that kind of takes a little of the spice out of the game, I'm afraid. Well, let me defend
0: your book here for a moment because I do think that you bring this idea through in the book. You know, we've mainly been talking about your ideas about the appeal of golf courses as environments or as habitats. Right. But there's a big set of ideas in this book about why the act of playing golf is satisfying. And one of those ideas is that it offers a, a realm for improvement, which is what you're talking about right now. And, um, you know, here's here, there are a number of, of great passages to refer to here. There, uh, uh, one quote that jumped out to me this time reading your book is that golf is a great sport for the striver, right? And if I could just read a, a, a quick passage to maybe get your your thoughts going about this, you say that that people are happiest when they are working toward a goal, in our distant ancestors, this trait helped assure survival. In our time, survival is rarely an issue. And this is at least for people who, who have the opportunity to play golf. Yet the striving trait lives on within us, seeking an outlet. This is why people try to circumnavigate the globe in hot air balloons. This is why we have tourists trekking to the top of Mount Everest. It is why each autumn the marathons in New York and Washington are oversubscribed. People want to strive. Striving makes them happy therefore golf makes them happy and in fact this is this is also one big reason why and it and this was your story as well why people may let golf go in their 20s and pick it back up in the in their 30s or 40s because in our 20s a lot of us are striving in many realms of our professional and personal lives many of us are building our careers looking for promotions in our 20s we're looking, uh, often many of us are, are looking for a mate in our 20s. We're we're looking to start families. And, and those are both arenas in which people really have to strive in order to succeed. But by the time many people are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, they've kind of settled into a life, right? They've maybe settled into a family life. They've maybe settled into a professional life. And the striving is not as, as much part of what they're doing. And so that's why people sometimes take up golf, because it offers a place to strive. And so you still think that's true, but for for you, that part of the game
1: has become less, right? Yeah, because I, I guess I'm afflicted. Bob Rotella would tell me I'm defeating myself. Um, I'm afflicted with the sense that even if I uh, started, again, devoting a lot of time to practice... Um, I would not be able to do any better and, and probably not do as well as I could 20 years ago. Uh, so, so as a result, I, I really rely on golf to give me a companionship and exercise. You know, my buddies that I play with are very important in my life and the exercise I get playing golf is important to me and just the, the, the sheer, Pleasure of hitting the ball well occasionally or even making a groundy or an aqua sandy, uh, is important to me. But, uh, I can't invest myself as much as I did in seeing, you know, can I, can I get to be a single digit? Can I get to be less than a six? Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things you find out, unfortunately, is that it takes twice as much work to get from six to five as it did to get from 20 to 10. And, uh, you know the uh, the the practicing that i had to do i did it in part because when i was writing about golf i felt like it was an occupational uh necessity uh you know it, bob rotella in fact and i both got a little invested in the back flap of the books that we did uh, there'd be a little paragraph about me and it started out in the first book saying in the time, in his time working with bob rotella Bob Cullen's handicap has gone from 21 to 13, and you know the next book it was 21 to 11, and you know when I became a single digit with about the third or fourth book, that that Rotella liked that, and uh, and it and I liked it, and but I got down to five, and I realized that um, you know to get anywhere from below five, I would have to start spending hours a day at the golf course, trying to improve marginally on my putting or marginally. And I don't like practicing putting. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Uh, in one of the Rotella books we had uh, that we, we wrote about putting. I had some great putting drills from Dottie Pepper. I interviewed her and, and uh, she gave me a few drills that we incorporated into that book. And those drills are great you have to, for example, um, draw a straight line on the putting green, uh, fi- find a straight putt, in other words, and then put three balls down at three feet, hit them in three in a row, and then move it back to five feet, hit them in three in a row, move it back to seven feet, hit them in three in a row. And if you can do that, your your practice is done. Um, it, it adds pressure to, to your practice. Uh, it grooves your stroke. It's a tremendous drill. Um, but it's, boy, it's tough on your back. And uh, <laughs> so I, I, if somebody invites me to play in a member guest and I don't want to embarrass myself, I will practice putting for a week or so. And, and it, it works every time. The drill improves my game by several strokes, but, uh, it, it's just not fun. And as I get older, I find I'm, I'm really only in it for the fun anymore. And, uh, so, uh, you know, give me a, a nice group of guys, a nice day and a $3 Nassau. And that's about as happy as I'm going to get from golf anymore. Uh, I'm not going to get there. I'm not going to get happy because I'm striving to uh, lower my handicap from seven to six. Although well, that was great. And it's true that in any endeavor, people who are who understand their own psychology will tell you that the the journey is 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 a much greater source of joy than the destination. And, you know, so uh feeling like you're working and, and making progress is is a great part of golf, but it's a part of golf I've given up.
0: And so then the pleasure that you get out of golf now is primarily social.
1: One of my proudest achievements is I taught my wife to play golf. I didn't teach her. She she had learned a little bit as a kid, but she started picked it up again when she was in her fifties and now she wants to go on golf vacations all the time. Uh, you know, we're, we're, when we go away this winter, uh, we're going to a place where there's a golf course and she's going to want to play every day if possible. And, uh, so, you know, as, as, uh, golf is, is giving us something we both enjoy doing together in our golden years. And, uh, it's, True that um, being with friends, you know, the, the, uh, the golf trips you take with your buddies, uh, those things, the camaraderie, uh, the weather, the, all those things are, are extremely important. And uh, golf is a way of, of uh, giving them to yourself.
0: Hmm. Are there moments now, even as you feel your skills on the course are declining and that the opportunity for improvement is more part of your past than it is part of your future. Are there moments when this kind of balance between difficulty and achievability that golf has still appeals to you? And what I mean by this is that, yes, golf is an extremely difficult game, but it's also possible to play it extremely well for anyone. You know, it doesn't matter if we're not wonderful athletes, we can all hit great shots. And so that is the achievable. That's the allure of playing golf in part that, you know, great golf is within our grasp, right? And occasionally we can play it, but it's extremely difficult to do that consistently. And so we, we kind of have to wait for those moments or work toward those moments. So, you know, even as you, you say that, you know, the act of playing golf and trying to get better at it has become less important to you, do you still feel like golf draws you because you feel like, you know, sometimes I can, I can achieve a, a state of
1: grace. Once in a while on a, in any round of golf, I think that's correct. I think, you know, I, I'm not sure I agree with you that anybody can play great golf. I'll, I'll tell you a story from a clinic that I went to with Jack Nicklaus Another story, and and as part of this clinic, people were getting golf clubs and the golf club sets included hybrids. And and Jack said, how do you like those hybrids? And fine, Jack, you know, and he said, well, I don't use them. You can't work the ball with that. You can only hit it high and straight. And uh, (laughs) yeah, like that's so bad. (laughs) And in Jack's world, that was true because Jack's (laughs) golf game operates within such fine tolerances that he can't work the ball with a hybrid club. Uh, he wants to be able to fade it and draw it. And he gets, he can do that with the old standard irons. He can't do it with hybrids. And after that clinic, every time I hit a big hook or a terrible slice with a hybrid club, I'd say, no, Jack, you're wrong. You can work the ball with, <laughs> with a hybrid club because, you know, the average player doesn't swing the way Jack swings. Um, Jack's, Jack's swing is a different a- animal altogether. And uh, so anyway, I think the average person is capable of some good shots and once in a while doing them. And if you practice more, you get more consistent with it. But nowadays, uh, you know, the the for me, a long drive is, is one that catches the other side of a hill and, and rolls out to 200 yards. Uh, I'm never going to hit the ball 270 again. Not that I ever did very often anyway, but, um, and so what really I think highlight my golf rounds are the, the recovery shots. You know, when you, when you, when you hit the ball in a bunker, but then you knock the bunker shot to two feet and make the putt. That, that's one of the highlights or, um, you know, the, the, uh, occasional shot where, Uh, the ball comes right off the club the way you want it to. And if it's, if it's a well designed course, you know, you've got some shots there where they look harder than they are. And so you, you hit the ball over a bunker and onto the green and stop it. And I don't stop it very sharply anymore, but I can still keep it from rolling out through the green. And if I hit it well and those kinds of shots that look harder than they are are the uh, kinds of shots that uh, good golf course architects build into their courses and which can give me that, that same feeling of yeah I can do this but to be honest it's mostly the the occasional recovery shots you know mm-hmm. if i have a good day in the bunkers i'm i'm having a good day right
0: yeah well when i say that anybody is capable of great golf I don't mean that anybody is capable of putting together 18 holes of great golf, right? Right. Obviously that's, that's not true. (laughs) uh, You know, maybe, maybe most people would be able to get there with a lot of practice, but most of us don't practice enough or, or work hard enough on our games to, or have enough time to, to develop those kinds of skills. But But you
1: put your finger on one of the allures of the game. And that is that anybody who can break a hundred can remember hitting a great drive down the middle or hitting a seven iron crisp to a pin. And then the, the, the lure is, well, if I could do it once, I certainly should be able to do it more often. Whereas if, if you are a pole vaulter, uh, you know, you're never going to, uh, get, get very far off the ground with a pole in your hands. Uh, or if you're a a boxer, you're never going to last more than five seconds with a professional heavyweight. And, uh, So golf has that element that you mentioned that uh, is very alluring. Uh, The notion that I've done it once, there's no reason except for consistency that I can't do it all the time. And of course, consistency is the mystery of the game, one of the mysteries of the game. But uh, anyway... Yes. Uh, yeah, you're correct. It, it, it's within that.
0: reach. Yeah, exactly. The, the achievability factor that is kind of what golf offers is that, is that little mirage, I guess, most of the time of achievability and, you know, the, to the extent that you find that appealing, that's the extent to which you remain obsessed with the game. Do you think that's accurate?
1: I think you're right. I think that's what keeps you practicing. If you are a practicer, um, and uh, that's what kept me practicing because I knew that if I worked on it, I would develop more consistency. I remember when my kids were young, uh, we'd go down to the beach in South Carolina and there are a lot of good practice ranges down there in the Myrtle Beach area. I don't know whether you've ever been there. But, yes. Um, well, uh, I would go to a probe before our vacation and I would ask for some drills. And he would give me drills to improve my contact with the ball, or something of that nature. And when we got to South Carolina, because the kids were small, I couldn't take an I couldn't take six hours to play a round of golf, but I could take an hour and a half and go to a range somewhere and work on those drills. And when I came back from those vacations, I was always a stroke or two better than I had been because the drills made me more consistent. And if I wanted to get better at golf now, that's what I would start doing. I would get a pro and I would get some drills and I would improve what I have, even though what I have now is not going to be what I had 25 years ago. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's one of the great allures of the game for people who are like you or me, uh, the striver uh, that uh, you want to improve. Uh, you can see the possibility or the potential of playing well and you're willing to work on drills or other kinds of practice that will slowly make your game more consistent Uh, you know i i would spend an hour on those south carolina practice ranges swinging on one leg because uh my pro uh told me that you know you've got to work on something and and it worked uh you know uh when I came home, I was I was shooting a couple or three strokes better than I had been when I left on that vacation. And people said, you must have played a lot of golf. And I said, no, I just did a lot of practice. Right.
0: You finish this book with a really lovely chapter, I think, about twilight golf. Yeah. And I wonder if you still love
1: twilight golf. I don't. Do it as often as I used to. Um, but I still do it occasionally. And, uh, you know, I, I have to tell you that, that, that Twilight Golf chapter featured my two children who are now, uh, close to middle age and, uh, they don't play golf anymore. I don't know why, uh, I couldn't, couldn't instill it in them. In any case, uh, Twilight Golf was something that I did when they were young and we had dinner at six o'clock because that's when they wanted to have dinner. And I didn't have the cocktail before dinner. And then it would be six thirty, and it, there would be two perfectly good hours. And I'd say, let's go out and play golf or I would go out and play golf. And uh, when you're a working person, which I was then uh, those are your hours to play. You got to use those twilight hours. Uh, especially if you can get your kids to go out and and take the kids off uh, out of the house for a couple of hours. So I, I really like that and I uh, and I still do it occasionally, but uh, but not as much as I did when the kids were small.
0: what I what I really like about this portrayal of Twilight Golf is you know this idea that you're on this kind of abandoned golf course for the most part. And you have a, a line in here where you say, even though the day is kind of coming to an end and, and you're kind of aware of advancing time, it seems like you have more time when you're playing twilight golf than at any other time of the day. And you know, that, that just strikes me as something that's, that can be really pleasurable. And I I wish were kind of more common in golf. People are often sort of rushing through a golf round making sure they're not holding anybody up and, they're keeping score and, and there's a set of rules about how you go about it. In twilight golf, those rules kind of seem to be suspended and, and you're able to play a little more. It's a time to bring kids out on the course, you know,
1: yeah, because you're not, you're not trying to finish around. And, you know, I, I have to say I am a, a stickler for pace of play in golf. Uh, yes. And we were at uh, pine needles a couple of weeks ago Um there was a group of guys that were playing a tournament among themselves and they were putting everything out and lining everything up three times. Grinding
0: over two and, footers drives and me crazy.
1: Playing behind them, it took us five hours to play. Yeah. And I was very unhappy about that because I like to play in four hours. Uh, but Twilight Golf, maybe I put too much pressure on myself to move along and, and to uh, never hold anybody up and so forth. Uh, Twilight Golf maybe was special. In fact, now that you talk about it, uh, because I didn't have that kind of, uh, desire to move, move the game along and not hold anybody up and, uh, and get done with my round in, in a, in a four hour, at a four hour pace. And so, yeah, maybe the, maybe one of the, one of the real, attractions one of the great things about Twilight golf is that you know if you don't play six holes you play five no nobody cares and uh, it it takes a time pressure element away from the game and the time pressure element is necessary in, in in golf the way it is in this country today you can't have somebody playing five hours on a course that has other people on it because it's not fair to them but there's something nice about being liberated from the time constraints which you are to some, which you are basically 100% liberated in in Twilight Golf if you're playing it at a course that you belong to, and and uh, that uh, you know you can switch from one hole to the next, uh, skip a few holes, and and uh, or hit an extra shot, or all those other things that are part of the pleasure of the game that you can't have on a Saturday morning when everybody's trying to get around the golf course before lunch.
0: Well, Bob, thank you so much for talking with me today. The book is called Why Golf? I recommend that that people revisited it. If you read it years ago, it's a good one to pick up again. Um, But thanks again for coming on the podcast.
1: Garrett, it's been a pleasure. And, And on behalf of golf writers everywhere, thanks for doing what you're doing.
0: This episode of the fried egg podcast was edited by Meg Atkins. If you'd like to support the fried egg, the single best way to do that is to join club TFE, go to the fried membership to learn more and to sign up. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back soon.